Okay, so thank you guys again both for coming on. I know that this is, um, you're both very busy, and this is, I'm sure, just a, a difficult day as, as friends of Toby's um, to uh, be sort of recognizing you know, the day that he passed away. But I guess I just would love to open, as I try to troubleshoot some of this nonsense, I'm going to turn it over to you guys and just talk about... Carolyn, you said something uh, really beautiful. I think right after he passed, we were just talking very briefly, and you said uh, a lot of people made movies. He made history. And um, I guess I just would love to hear you guys talk about, as as people who knew him, as people who worked with him, um, what it was that made him so completely unique. I don't think we've never seen a Toby Hooper before him. I don't think we'll ever see a Toby Hooper again. And what it was about him that made him just so completely unique. I know from my perspective, um, a lot of it is he came here as an iconoclast. Um, His movie was groundbreaking. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was groundbreaking, not just in horror as a genre, but in film overall. For such a low budget to have achieved something so magnificent, I watched it in 35 on the big screen at the Egyptian not long ago. And the nuances of the photography, the actors, the simple invention of Leatherface as a protagonist and an antagonist, almost at the same time, um, it was history-making. It was new. And I don't know that he knew the enormity uh, at the time. He had to struggle to try to get it to find an audience. And it was only the passage of time that really demonstrated what a phenomenal filmmaker he was. It took Steven Spielberg 
bringing him out poltergeist to achieve a lot of the worldwide recognition that he would that he would ultimately enjoy and even that was kind of a a a strange thing he was from texas uh his vision and his ideas about independent cinema um were very individual and i think that was his key achievement um it took a long time for him to be really accepted as what ultimately became the masters of horror which are the this this uh, aggregation of phenomenal filmmakers who dominate in horror but are amazing filmmakers and who've recreated i mean who created a lot of film techniques um that standard filmmakers use today um his reputation is just and 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 earned so yeah i'm going to throw it to mick <laughs> Well, you know, he came of cinematic age in a very explosive and creative time in independent cinema and cinema period. You can't plan on making history. Nobody makes a movie expecting it to become iconic and the first of its kind. But what was special about Toby was he had a vision Texas Chainsaw Massacre as brutal and in that sense of horror films commercial as it was was really the first art horror film you look at the construction of that movie and and each of those shots and even though it was shot in 16 millimeter uh it has an aggressiveness and an artistic quality that nobody nobody was doing at that time people were being brutal but not artistically brutal in the way that he was <clears throat> you know if you had three people in in a, like an 8 or 10 year period um George Romero invented uh, a kind of horror, uh, cinematic horror that nobody had done before in 1968 with with Night of the Living Dead. Toby Hooper in 1974 with Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the same year as The Exorcist. And then in 1978, there's John Carpenter. And, you know, there was a new language created for cinema. And Toby and John and George all contributed to that. But... There, there's something also unique about Toby is he's, he was unbelievably sweet and funny and charming. And he was like a Texas Jimmy Stewart, you know, wah, 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 <laughs> you know, ah, ah. And, and I just, you know, to know Toby was to love him. And he's sort of like that, that kind of person that once you meet him, you just want to hug him and take care of him, you know, that he has incredible control and imagination and sometimes his communication skills would not be as verbal as they were um, just enthusiastic but you knew what he was going for um, I met him on the set of Poltergeist when I was doing publicity on that movie and he recognized me from my old Z Channel interview show and we hit it off from there like crazy and we became really close friends and he was such an inspiration that when masters of horror as a tv series happened after you know having these dinners and everything together um to be able to oh my god i'm producing two fucking toby hooper movies you know <laughs> how thrilling is that so you know any anything for toby this is this is a melancholy day but it should be a, a day of celebration rather than sad well, and Mick, you know, I, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I just wanted to add to what Mick said about his personality. He was not a Hollywood type. He was not a self promoter. It wasn't a lack of confidence. 
I think he felt his work could stand on its own. Um, I think he simply, he always had a movie going in his mind. He was phenomenally visual. And um, his personality, along with his film style, it was it, it juxtaposed in a weird way in Hollywood because everybody's a big self-promoter. People are talking all the time about themselves and all their ideas and all their stuff. Toby just let the work speak for itself. I don't know how truly ambitious he was. I know he took his opportunities as they came. I know he was very jazzed about having his career establish itself in Hollywood. But he was always an indie guy. He was always an independent filmmaker. He always kept that attitude. He was a bit of a maverick. And I, I don't know that he cared for the approbation of elite Hollywood filmmakers. I, I think he found his tribe. Um, and particularly among the names that Mick uh, mentioned, Romero and um, Clive Barker and... Um, you know, all the other guys that followed or, or that were a part of his, because all those guys kind of had that personality. None of them were Hollywood guys. They really kept their independence. And yet Toby was embraced by, you know, William Friedkin was the guy who brought him to Hollywood. And Steven Spielberg was the guy who brought him to prominence in, in a more mainstream sense. And so although he had one foot in Hollywood, he was fiercely independent. But another thing people don't know about Toby is that he's not, he wasn't just a horror guy, even though sometimes when you achieve success in this genre, in fact, almost all the time, basically you're in a ghetto or a jail cell that you can't get out of. He loved it, but what people don't know is he was also a student of cinema history. You know, international film history. He knew he'd seen everything inside and out of the genre, but he was incredibly cinematically literate. And and just, you know, Dr. Pepper and cigars is what we think of when we think of Toby a lot of the time in addition to his movies, but those who, uh, those of us who were lucky enough to know him shared something really special. When he was your friend, he was really your friend. You were fully embraced by Toby Hooper when he became a part of your life. And, you know, being able to celebrate this on this day that you've put together here um, is, is really, you know, something that needs to be done, uh, not just for Toby, but for George and for, for Wes and, and for all the people that we've lost, and they were so close together. Um, you know, obviously I knew all three of those guys, but Toby was the one I was closest to and was a truly close friend. You know? there's, a, a, there's a little bit of, I feel like, you two guys being kindred spirits in a way. Um, because, Very and again, I'm, I'm only coming at it from a, from a fan's perspective. Um, well, me too. <laughs> well, sure, but like I've you know I've seen you in interviews and I listen to postmortem and and so I know you to be a you know sweet, gentle, soft-spoken guy. But I've also read your books, <laughs> and they're demented, right? So, um, and I think where does that come from? <laughs> and. That to me reminds me so much of Toby Hooper, where, you know, to hear him speak, he's so soft spoken and under the radar. And then he puts these things on screen that are just batshit crazy in the best way. Um, 
Well, I think there's a reason for that. I think the people that you you meet who uh, create horror novels, horror fiction, horror films and the like, you know, our job is to dream awake. The repressed are the people I worry about. You know, most of the people I know uh, who create horror films and, and horror fiction and horror art and the like really are exorcising demons and uh, they have huge, gentle hearts. You know, they're the first ones to pass out if you see somebody genuinely bleeding in the street. You know, <laughs> me. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, I can't tell you that I'm a vegan. A bunch of uh, the filmmakers I know are vegan because of their care for animals and their sensitivity to life. And I think that it's an interesting dichotomy between what we make and who we are. Um, and one of the reasons we make what we make is because of who we are. But our nightmares, we're able to do it in our working hours. And so uh, I think it relieves us of a lot of, of what repressed people are dangerous for. Make Either make horror movies or wear a... a, a a, you know, a, a long overcoat and shoot kids in school. Right, you know, I right. don't want that to be the choice. Right, so. right. Um, Caroline, you worked with Toby on one of my favorite of his movies and one of my favorite just movies, period. But the the film that you guys made together, um, I know, was very difficult just in terms of time pressure and studio pressure and just everything was kind of run and gun. It was his third film in two years. And um, can you talk a little bit just about that experience of being, you know, sort of having your break on this movie that is so sort of challenging to make? I think part of the hallmark of the film and, and Toby as a director is he was editing Invaders from Mars at the time we were shooting. So he was operating on three, four, five hours of sleep a day. Um, But you would never have known it because his vision of this film was so precise. His shot list was so precise. Doesn't mean that we didn't get to experiment with all kinds of things. Um, He was so thoroughly engaged. And I never knew at the time that that was what was going on on this film. Um, Cannon was giving him a lot of trouble we had a, um, a production manager that was very aggressive. Um, our last 13, 14 days of shooting, we were literally shooting our primary unit and secondary units. We were going 20 hours a day. I was sleeping in, our, in, in my trailer um, because we had to get these shots and we had to get the movie completed. But he took such joy and he had such an exuberant spirit and his enthusiasm was so enormous. You would never have known it. And he didn't take any shortcuts. He had to have a lot of aggressive fights with this guy. I'm not going to name him um, <laughs> because he's kind of a bigwig now, as far as I know. But uh, Toby did not compromise his vision for the film one bit. Um, I was also thrilled that he chose me out of a vast ocean of actors that he auditioned on both coasts, he wanted a Texas actress for this film. And he was very determined to have that because I think he felt like there's a regionalism to being from Texas. There's a mythology and a mysticism that goes along with it. I think he wanted to see an actress who could live that out. And, um, and I think it made a lot of the magic happen. Plus 
just the vivid nature of every individual character in the cast. The reimagining of Leatherface as this much more multidimensional character than what he was before. I think that's what made the movie what it is today. It's got such an enduring appeal. We're constantly getting new audience. It doesn't matter how old the movie gets. Mm-hmm. It always seems fresh when you see it again. Yeah, and I've I've been making a case so far today that, you know, I think a lot of his movies have only improved with time when people can kind of get away from some of their expectations because nobody walked into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 expecting that movie um, because it was such a departure from the original film in a great way. And I think now with time, people are able to understand um, just this morning, Elric was saying, if you want to understand Toby Hooper, he's the guy that made Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Texas Chainsaw Massacre part two. Like he existed on both ends of those um, and everything in between. How, as an actor, did he sort of get you to that place? I mean, you spend the last 30 to 40 minutes of that movie just in sustained terror, which he does better than anyone, I would argue. He just brings it to 11 and then keeps it at 11. Um, How does he, you know, how much of that is you just saying, okay, I have to get there? Obviously, that's a big part of it. But was there anything that he was doing with you to sort of help you get to that place? I think the the whole concept from the time that I was hired, this is an action film. This is going to have a ton of kinetic energy. It's going to have a ton of psychological energy. Um, I think he wanted somebody who was going to be able to f- fulfill that physical commitment because it's pell-mell from the time I go down into the land in the smokehouse and I am in the underground realm of uh, the Sawyer family that pace never lessens. There are no, there are no quiet moments, right. really. Um, and I think that was his commitment. Um, he, he's the, he was the kind of director, when we were working on the film, he would just shout instructions to you right off camera. We were getting improvised and, and redone pages off camera. I remember Kit handing me pages saying, okay, now, now do it this way. Now, now use these lines. Um, you really had to be on your game. And because I was so enthusiastic about being able to work for him and be in this particular movie, which was like you said, it's, it's, it's completely an inside out movie compared to the first one. Um, I was just really eager to make sure that I absolutely got it right. And I enjoyed that atmosphere. I enjoyed the set that Carrie White created for us. We walked into that impeccable art direction of the underground world. And it was like, it was a romp. It was like being in an amusement park. I mean, it didn't matter how tired I was. At one point I got sick for a day because I'm in nearly every frame of film. Um, The enthusiasm that I felt for being there and working opposite Bill Mosley as Chop Top Bill Johnson, uh, Jim Seidel, my beloved Lou Perriman, um, and of course Dennis Hopper. Not only did I recognize the opportunity, I was also learning so much from these incredible actors. And uh, the energy on that set never flagged. 
People, it was one of the very few movies I've ever been on where people didn't complain. That's amazing. Again, considering <laughs> conditions under which, but I, you know, it's it's really cool that he sort of shielded a lot of that outside pressure um, from the rest of you guys and just allowed you to create on set. He wasn't that kind of guy. Yeah. He was not a complainer. Anything that was happening behind the scenes was behind the scenes. Well, you got it right, Carolyn. <laughs> you did get it right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and would do it again if I had the opportunity. Um, Mick, this week I was watching the original postmortem interview that you had done with Toby Hooper, which is so wonderful. And very early on, you sort of coined this phrase that I've already brought up um, about his films and the way that they go for the throat. Um, in a way that I don't see a lot of other horror filmmakers. There's, there's so much that I love about so many of the different filmmakers that were his contemporaries or filmmakers that have come after him. But again, what is so unique about his movies is the way that they, as you say, go for the throat. Um, was that something that you picked up on just on that first viewing of Texas Chainsaw? Is that something that you sort of put together over time that, oh, there's a, there's a quality to each of these movies that they have in common? Yeah, they're aggressive. You know, they, they really, as gentle as Toby was as a human being, um, his movies were really aggressive. And it's interesting because so many people, particularly at that time, their films were uh, sexual in nature as well. You know, the sex and violence thing came to together. He was never really like that. Um, as aggressive as they were, they weren't rapey. They weren't, you know, at that time, there wasn't an awareness of gender roles and the like the way there are now. And yet he seemed to be aware of it. When we were doing Dance of the Dead for Masters of Horror, there was some nudity in it. And he was kind of like a little kid. He said, well, well this one's a little bit naughty. <laughs> you know, and it was like something new to him. But, but the the going for the throat is, you know, it, it's more common now because people often make uh, horror movies where the entire raison d'etre is to, to offend or to see how much you can take mm -hmm. and go over the top to see its whole point in being is to be extreme. But Toby's was always part of a vision. Mm -hmm. You know, it was part of a story. It was part of something he really liked to kind of poke you in the eye, but with a sense of humor. You know, Texas Chainsaw 2 is something that is so funny that it goes beyond black humor. It's so bloody and so grotesque that I call it red humor. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's totally Toby. And it's like, would it be great if this guy's face came off? And, you know, and, and attack her with the chainsaw and, 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 and it'll be kind of naughty. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he, he had no filters. And yet there were times when he was forced to have filters. You know, Poltergeist was a, a PG movie right before they made PG-13. And it works beautifully. And... You know, he's all over that movie. Uh, his personality is all over it. So he had he had a wide range. Uh, 
his palette was large, but he wasn't allowed to to use many of the paints over the course of his career because he was consigned mostly to independent horror films. But you see what he can do in a collaboration with Steven Spielberg. And yes, it was a collaboration with Steven Spielberg. I was there. So shut the fuck up. Uh, <laughs> I love you. <laughs> and, I do uh, have to interject something, though, about the sexual. Um, I think he was a very, I think he was a very sexual man, as evidenced by the chainsaw scene. Because yeah, that scene was really unique among uh, his films. It was utterly unique, but it was also a significant risk because even at the script level, there was a request by Cannon to take that out. It was considered to be a rape scene. The chainsaw goes up my leg and it touches me at my nethers. And <laughs> and Leatherface goes through his gyrations and he delivers. And that's the reason that we had the unrated release. Um he refused to take it out. He refused to cut it out. He refused to compromise that scene in any way through the editing process. He kept it exactly was, as it was. That was a significant risk in 1986. Yeah. Um, women's groups went insane. People lost their minds over that scene. Nobody cared about anything else with the face coming off, all the other action that yeah. took place in the scene. Nobody really cared about. But that scene... I, I remember when I first came to town after the release, seeing various agents, I couldn't get an agent because of that scene. Wow. It took Dennis Hopper walking me into his agency and saying, she's good, sign her. That's the reason I got representation when I came to town. He was not afraid to take risks. He was not. And, and uh, going back to what Mick said about Poltergeist, I feel like it was a significant risk to have that very tender, beautiful scene with Beatrice Strait when she describes to the little boy what happens when people die. It's one of the most sensitive, utterly beautiful things that I've ever seen in what would classify as a horror film. It's such a grace note. You would think it would take people out of the horror element. It doesn't. It completely recontextualizes the entire movie and gives heart to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like the, in, a, in an equal but opposite way, that chainsaw sex scene in the ice house, it recontextualized Chainsaw 2. Mm-hmm. I mean, where do you go after you see that? Well, Toby went. <laughs> yeah. you know? But that is a unique, it's a unique scene to him. And... It's a great scene, and it is very much a rape scene and all of that. But you're not stripped bare. You're not held down. No. You're not penetrated. You know, it. it's not exploitive. It, as silly as that might sound, it's not exploited. It's very much a part of it. And he wasn't a guy to revel in the titillation of violence against women, which is something not that is, is problematic. And that Spielberg thing, you know, that scene you're talking about, Stephen was the last guy to write. He did the final shooting drafts of all of that and everything. And it probably came from him. And I, Stephen asked me, I, I directed a pilot for Spielberg of a, of a series called The Others. And Toby and Stephen had not really been together since Poltergeist um, until The Others happened. And I suggested bringing in Toby to direct one of the episodes. My job as producer was mainly to be the directing producer on that show. 
And Toby came in. Stephen loved the idea. Toby came in, did one of the best episodes of the series, and just killed it. And Stephen and he were thrilled. And Stephen came to the set and all of that. They collaborated once again. And it was so great to be kind of a facilitator in, in that reunion. And it was magic. Were you yeah, instrumental I, in uh, in bringing him to Amazing Stories then also, or was that Stephen? Uh, that was Stephen's idea. Sorry, okay. it, it was since Amazing Stories, they hadn't been. Doing okay, got it. it. But no, that was entirely Stephen. And, and um, you know, Richard Christian Matheson wrote the Amazing Stories episode based on his father, Richard Matheson's short story. And Richard Christian wrote both of the Masters right. of Horror episodes that Toby directed. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I was re-listening to some of his, uh, commentary over Invaders from Mars this morning, and he was talking about his approach to making the movie, and he makes this sort of offhand comment where he says, well, you know, they, they wouldn't let me make any comedies. <laughs> and it's really struck me <laughs> because you could see, you know, that, that first short film that he made that garnered him all that attention was a comedy. Um, and then you see him trying to work it into so much of his filmography and that amazing stories is the most comedic thing he had done really yeah. since the heisters. And so I think it's a necessary piece of his sort of filmography to say, like you said, he, he had all these paints and they would only let him use certain colors. And so it's nice to see something like amazing stories where it's, he gets to paint with a different color. Yeah, Toby was a great artist and a great technician and just a, a really good guy. He loved movies. He loved them. And it, there was probably not a day go by where he didn't watch a movie or two. And and it just it, he was a very unique guy. There was nobody like him. I know everything I've heard about the shooting of Texas Chainsaw Massacre the first um Everything was a nightmare, you know, and shooting in 120 degree heat and all everybody's tempers on edge and the like. But the Toby I knew, and I guess what Carolyn is saying as well, is this was he was kind of a teddy bear, you know. You know, he it was difficult in many ways to maintain a friendship with Toby because he had the one home phone number where you had to leave a message on his phone. <laughs> And he might call you back or he might not call you back. Probably but when not. he called you back, it was always a last minute, hey, you want to meet it? Meet us at Cafe Basu. We'll have some dinner. <laughs> and it's like, I've got 30 minutes to get ready to go to a nice restaurant and have dinner with Toby Uber. But you know what? You took the opportunity. And uh, he was always interested in what was going on in, in my life and who I was with. And I got married and I had kids. And those were interesting stories for him too. Um, but at the same time, like I said in another interview not long ago, he was very socially kind of, he was very difficult to read and difficult to get to know for me, uh, partly because we didn't share the ongoing film, um, ongoing film thing. Um, and I think just as a woman in many ways and as an actress, he was a little awkward a little socially awkward with that kind of thing. Yeah. I, it's interesting for you to mention Cafe Bisu because that's where we had our first Masters of Horror dinner. Yes. And he was one of 12 people that, you know, it took forever to set that thing up around everybody's schedules and the like. 
but he was always one of the first guys to be there. And but that night it was, you know, him and John Carpenter and Guillermo del Toro and John Landis and all, and all these guys, Bill Malone, Stuart Gordon, and it was just twelve people then. And it was like everybody realized, wow, it's an opportunity for us. Directors never work together unless you're shooting a cameo or something like that. And to be able to get together and tell war stories and just kind of have a fellowship joined by, you know, basically our vocations, realize how much we had in common and how much fun it was to be together and tell each other stories and get the tall Texas tales from Toby Hooper was pretty freaking amazing. And it was great. And and Toby lived right near there. So that's one of the reasons he didn't really like to drive that Hummer very much, but he, he loved it. <laughs> but he had Hummer. Yep, yep. <laughs> to be in that room, I can only imagine to be in that room with those filmmakers and just listen, just to listen to the stories. Yeah, yeah. well, it was kind of amazing, that one in particular, because we were we just had a table in that cafe, and it was filled with other uh, other diners in the restaurant who had no idea who these guys were. And at the table next to us, um, were somebody was selling celebrating a birthday. And they're singing happy birthday. And we all joined in uh, <laughs> singing happy birthday to the next table. And at the very end, Guillermo del Toro stands up and goes, Dimas Toro, wish you a happy birthday. <laughs> and that's kind of where we got the name. So, that's so <laughs> apropos. Yeah, exactly. And Toby... <laughs> His Dr. Peppers, he'd bring them along if they didn't serve it in the restaurant. <laughs> I truly hope that whoever was sung, uh, whoever had happy birthday sung to them by yeah. the Masters of Horror appreciates and understands. Like, do you know who just sang happy birthday to you? Exactly. I guarantee you they don't. Oh, oh it's wasted on them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but our last. Our last of the Masters dinners that we've had, hopefully there will be more, was to salute Toby, and there were 35 directors there. Wow. So it was pretty amazing, yeah. And I have to say, at his memorial, it was held at the New Beverly. Which oh, is, ouch. It's, but you know what? It was so wonderful, because there were so many remarkable people there. And um, Eli Roth showed up to, to pay his respects and speak a little bit the inspiration that Toby brought to his career. Ernest Dickerson was there. Mick obviously was there. Um, it, it, in a way, was a bit of a Masters of Horror reunion. Absolutely. Uh, and, and it was very moving. And we got to see Toolbox Murders after. And that was very special because that's one of my favorite films. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's just, oh, gosh. That was just this year. That was back in February, I think. Wow. Yeah, that was hard for me. I mean, I... I and me too. Talk. We sat next to each yeah. other. We were sobbing and holding hands oh, there. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I couldn't talk because I was too emotional about it. That's when you're close with Toby, you know, you're close. Well, and Amanda Plummer was there and her recollections. I had you, you on know, one the, side and Amanda on the other. Amanda on the other. Hands tightly. Exactly. Yeah. And her recollections, her... Her way of speaking and expressing herself is also completely unique and very much like Toby. And uh, to hear her speak and everything she said was so heartfelt. It was it was one of the more affecting moments during that service and and a, and a real treat. They were a great team. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I 
the quality of his films as time passed was somewhat variable in some ways, um, but he remained true to his purpose until his, you know, until Jen, which I still haven't seen, and and I many people, I know. Yeah, I think you have a copy. I don't have a copy. He brought over a Blu-ray to my house and showed it to me, and uh, it was pretty. You know, visually, it's great. It's not a terrific script, but it's a fascinating movie. And he was terrified making it because the uh, the government of this Middle Eastern country where he was shooting it. Apparently, that's why it never came out because it's about uh, a woman who moved away to the United States and and. Uh, there was a paranoia he had about the government uh, being after him and going to assassinate him if the movie came out. So he had. God, it'd be so great to arrange some kind of screening where, you know. Maybe we can get it from to- Tony. I'm in touch with Tony. I-, I was in touch with Tony this morning. Maybe he I has would... that Blu ray, yeah. Yeah. I know a screening room. <laughs> I've only something nice and private. The, uh... Something nice and private that the FBI and CIA can't bug. <laughs> right. The FBI. Although there's nothing they can't bug, so yes, I don't the, know. The members of those agencies who aren't watching YouTube right now. <laughs> exactly. Keep it on the download. Was he someone who, you know, because he had been through his share of uh, just difficulties in the business, you know, um, movies falling through or movies sort of being recut, going all the way back to Eaten Alive, which he ended up kind of leaving because of, he was clashing with producers. And so he had had his share of challenges in the in the business, but was he someone who was still optimistic about the process? I mean, did he ever become sort of jaded about the process of making movies? I know he loved making movies but in terms of the the kind of you know the bullshit process stuff was he jaded about that i just think he was pissed about it frankly okay (laughs) because even with spielberg's imprimatur even with the acceptance in the community that he was a part of with very prestigious directors i don't know that he learned sufficiently how to diplomatically work the business and work agencies and work that structure that corporate structure And I don't think he wanted to. I don't think he wanted to have to compromise himself to what other people wanted him to do. He was very resistant to that. I don't know that he ever really achieved Hollywood's love. And I don't know that he wanted it. Mick, what do you... I think, you know, he was an independent. You know, he was an independent filmmaker. And it's why, you know, he wanted to make movies his way. And it's not often that you get to make movies your way in the studio system. And his films were so idiosyncratic, not that they weren't commercial, but in the independent world, it's so hard to get financing and funding for the projects you want to do that sometimes that's the work that's offered you and you'll take something that might not be something you want to do. But I never saw him attack a movie without his full enthusiastic passion. He loved making movies and You know, you get jaded in a certain way, you don't evolve anymore. You just do it to do it and and make the rent, you know, pay your mortgage. I never saw him like that. No matter how paltry the budget uh, or, you know, uh, a project that might not be something that would attain a 
legendary status like some of his movies did, he still approached it the same way. You know, he was somebody who loved having the opportunity to make movies, always had something in development of his own. And then when something comes on, you never know where your next movie is going to come from. You can have a passion project that is on the verge of a green light or has even gotten a green light several times and then it falls apart two weeks before you start you start shooting. You know, and then something comes up, do you want to leave tomorrow for Pittsburgh to make a new movie? Uh, or more likely Vancouver. Um, <laughs> and Pittsburgh. Just, yeah, I haven't yeah. been Pittsburgh yet. <laughs> yeah. I shot part of the stand in Pittsburgh for a couple of days. But... Um, <laughs> But, you know, you just travel, you're a vagabond, you go where where the projects are. But I never saw him anything but enthusiastic and excited about anything he attacked. And to give him, to be able to bring him into Masters of Horror, where the philosophy was, look, we want John Carpenter to make a John Carpenter movie. We want Dario Argento to make a Dario Argento movie. We want Toby Hooper to make a Toby Hooper movie. And to do that two seasons in a row and give him a, a professional union crew and all of the opportunities, all the technical possible, you know, uh, technical tools to do his best work was thrilling. And to watch what he did with that was even more thrilling. I think they're two of the best episodes of the show. You know? Mick said something. Um, maybe it was just in conversation between the two of us. It could have been, no, it was the, uh, it was when you were over at Podcast One, and we did oh, that. Yeah. We did that interview. Um, Mick said about Steven Spielberg, he had celluloid running in his veins, yeah. and I always felt the same way about Toby. And it could have been the source of the bond that they shared. Um, yeah, I think the business aspects. He knew he was subject to them, but when he was working and when he was bringing a movie to life. That wasn't a part of his mindset. That was just not a part of his reality in those moments. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted to get those shots and he wanted to tell that story in precisely the way he wanted. And I see that spirit in indie horror today. Um, I think I, I think it's the source that a lot of independent filmmakers bring to their films. And luckily, we have some of those uh, individuals as our guests on the show today. Uh, they can probably tell you that in, in, in a better way than I can. But uh, that spirit is very much a part of indie horror today. I find the atmosphere today to be so incredibly exciting. And the young filmmakers today are so very Toby to me because they're pugnacious, man. <laughs> they stand their ground. They've got their script. They want to do it the way they want to do it. And having to make compromises is very difficult for a lot of these indie filmmakers. So they don't do it. They're going to get their own money. They're going to find their own financiers. They're really and they can't make a living directing independent films. No, they can't. Anyway, so. <laughs> but you know, that's why we all work cheap. Yeah. The other thing it's like here's this about. great indie filmmaker with an incredible vision. What can I do for you? Yeah, and Toby, what was great about him too was how supportive he was of young filmmakers. You know, he was easily sought out. And um, he he made himself accessible to them, and you know was was welcoming. I mean, it's hard to it was hard to penetrate the wall around Casa Casa Hooper, uh, but it was hard uh, to get invited to Casa Hooper. <laughs> yes, well, he was he he was a, a little bit of a hermit, 
Well, maybe more than a little bit. But, you know, <laughs> he was at a convention or at a festival or something, or he was always wide open to, to young filmmakers asking him things, showing him their films, all of that stuff. He, he was really, he, he was Gandalf, you know. <laughs> well, and I have to say, having done the convention circuit with him, um, I don't think he cared about the money. I don't think he cared about anything. But meeting all these people, there was just a phenomenal meeting of the minds. And he was so unassuming and he was so easy. Uh, he was so accommodating and and so expressive about all of his opinions and all of his ideas. He didn't. He wasn't one of those filmmakers who was stingy and kept all of his visions to himself. He was more than enthusiastic about sharing with other filmmakers. And I think he really got a lot out of the convention circuit in that respect. And as his willingness to travel and go to Europe and receive the accolades that people wanted to give him grew, um, I think it revitalized something in him, which, you know, makes his passing in my, so untimely. It just, I, I, I remember waking up that morning and seeing it, it was the first thing that popped up on my um, on my iPad, and I gasped because I didn't even know he was he was always complaining. He was a hypochondriac. He was always complaining about being ill. <laughs> so it was entirely unexpected, and ah, um, oh, just the the feeling of that loss that morning was very difficult, you know. And it's difficult now because I, I forget sometimes. You know how you forget? Oh, I should, well, now I can't. So it's it's one of those things. Well, one thing that happened, you know, you were talking about his traveling. He was very, very hesitant to travel. He didn't really like it much. Um, and I'd been to a couple of festivals with him. But one thing that was really fantastic, he was invited to a festival in, in London that he wasn't going to do, and then he was going to do it, and, and he was nervous about going. And um, he went and had the time of his life, and he came home and was telling me how great it was and how glad he was that he did it, and it was not long before he passed. So there was the last month or so before he passed was a really happy time for him. He freed himself yes. of some really bad demons, and uh, he was well, happy. Yeah, phobias and, and bad shit going on in his life. Yes. And, uh, yes. you know, he freed himself of that with help of his friends. And, and, and he was genuinely happy before he went. So that is some small solace. I remember a story that Eli Roth told at the memorial. Um, and Eli was there, and, which was enormously fortifying. And what Eli Roth said is when he met Toby, had the opportunity to meet Toby for the first time, he unabashedly said, I'm stealing these shots from Chase off for cabin fever. Do you mind? It's really an homage. Toby said, steal away. I don't care. <laughs> it was that spirit. It was the generosity of spirit that he held. That And today, there are so many filmmakers, that's copyrighted material. You know? <laughs> he was not like that. He was not like that. It's the reason cabin fever rocks. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard in the last week, I've heard from a number of um, young filmmakers or even not even young filmmakers anymore, but a number of people who said, yes, Toby 
watched my short. Toby talked to me about it like he was a huge help. He was a mentor. He was an inspiration. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just beautiful that he was. And so it's asking, it asking, it's asking a lot of a working filmmaker to take the time mm -hmm. to look at this stuff and to get back to you and things like that. It's, it really is a big request and he was great with it. I'm an actor. I don't even do it. <laughs> I get a script. Where's my part? Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. All right. So let me ask this Texas Chainsaw two aside. Um, if tonight you say, I, I want to celebrate Toby. I want to watch one of his films. Which one do you both put on? I would put on life force simply because I haven't seen it in a long time. Mm -hmm. And it is so, it's, it's a little esoteric and it's a little <laughs> <laughs> ethereal and it's more of a foray into sci-fi than it is horror. That's probably what I would watch. Yeah. I mean, obviously the great one is Texas Chainsaw, but you want to pull something out like that. You stole mine because I would have <laughs> said life force. But, you would have done Life Force too, Mick. Yeah, you know I love that movie, and it's batshit crazy. You should hear John Landis uh, telling a story about being shooting in London while Toby was mixing in London, and going into the mixing stage and how it, really fun stuff to wanna. But um, you know, I'd probably go back and watch the Masters of Horror because they may be the things of his I've seen the least. I haven't watched them since the show was on, and uh, I would probably do that because. Having been there, as I was on Poltergeist, you know, to be able to celebrate Topi in, in, in a way where I could see beyond the frame of the film that I'm watching would be uh, a great way to memorialize today. Yeah. I should do that, too, because I have missed out on so much of his television. Yeah, he did some I great. Mean, I'm Dangerous Tonight with Machen Amick and Tony Perkins that yeah. he made for television. Yeah. <laughs> That's, a, That's a good one. Yeah. The apartment yeah. complex, another one where he is yes. getting to do uh, comedy. Yeah, really fun. Yeah. And well, the he others. considered the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to be a comedy. Oh, I somebody heard him say that, but that's, yeah, that, that's why he pushed the humor in the second one because he realized no one got it the first time. <laughs> so he said, well, <laughs> well, I'll make sure they get yeah. it. Exactly. Hitchcock, Hitchcock always referred to Psycho as a comedy. It might have been a defensive mode, but he always did. So between him and, and Toby, there's a, a great bond there. <laughs> <laughs> Those Masters of Horror are really wonderful, too, just because, again, it is such a, an unfettered expression of a filmmaker. It is such a you're not worried about studio interference. You're not worried about budget beyond here's what the budget is. You know, they're not nobody's yes. coming in and cutting yeah. your budget in half, you know, halfway through. Yeah. Um, and it's totally oh, being happens. told. Yeah. Yeah, and both both of his entries are such you can just you can tell who made them. You would watch them and yeah. if nobody told me Toby Hooper made this, I would sit down and say, Oh, I know exactly who made these. And that was mm -hmm. the point. I would love for you to see his episode of The Others if you can find it somewhere. It's really good. And I think you could watch it without watching the series and not be lost. Okay. It's really good. Very unique. It all takes place on a plane. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Drag it down. Yeah. Um, I know we're coming up on the end of our hour here, um, and I don't want to. God, that went by fast. I know. Well, listen, we're talking about uh, a really great subject, and uh, I guess before we wrap up, it's something I have never said. You know, I was busy asking you guys to come on and memorialize him, but I never did get the chance to say that I'm sorry to the both of you for the loss of your friend. Well, I'm sorry too. Uh, and I'm sorry for everybody for the things we're never going to get from Toby again, but especially to, to not be able to sit down with him and listen to the, to his stories and give him a hug. And, you know, when you'd see him, the first thing is the warmest hug you can imagine from from that bearded teddy bear. Yeah. <laughs> but we do still have the work, and yes. the work lives forever. And that work will always be a phenomenal inspiration to filmmakers, writers, actors, producers, mm-hmm. um, to know if you give your filmmaker freedom and let them take those risks and try to bring your budget into some kind of alignment. That's where the great movies come from. And we've got a lot more in store from all those filmmakers who were inspired by him and his work. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a rare enough thing to make one great film as a filmmaker. And uh, Toby was somebody who did that a lot. And so we're very fortunate. And as you said, his work lives on in the influence that he had on a whole new generation of filmmakers. That's really beautiful. And thanks for giving us the opportunity to to give him our love uh, after the fact. Oh, thank you, guys. It means the absolute world to me. Um, thank, thank you both. And Nick, it was so wonderful to appear with you again. Oh. Such a joy. Oh, thanks, Caroline. Anything for Toby and anything for Caroline. Oh, <laughs> same. Um, the same back at you. Okay. And Patrick, you look great on on Skype, dude. <laughs> yeah. You've got to do on. stuff. Well, you got to do my... the live. Oh, Toby. there you go. Oh, Toby I sweatshirt. love it. And wait, hold that's, it, wait for it. That, underneath. That's really cool. That's really cool, man. Underneath. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I love you. I love you for that. Thank you, guys. Patrick, thank you for, for the forum and, uh, you know, it's uh, and for giving the guy his due. Thank you both very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm going to watch the rest of the show because the rest of the guests that you have are fantastic. All right. Well, then I may bug you. Some of the top filmmakers and commentators and students of film. Looking forward to it. Beautiful. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Take care. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We will be back in just a few minutes. We will be joined by F This Movie's own Stephanie Crawford to uh, talk Eaten Alive. But once again, I just want to thank Caroline Williams and Mick Garris, two of my favorite human beings on the planet and two of just the nicest people I can imagine who, without hesitation, said, yeah, what can I do? And Caroline immediately started calling friends and people she knew and getting them on. And she obviously uh, was put me in touch with Mick and got him involved. So thank you again to the both of you. Um, We're going to play another dedication here um, and a song, and we will be back with Stephanie Crawford. What the hell is this thing for? What are we doing? 
it's for F this movie. Horror writer Patrick Bromley to host live video tribute to Toby Hooper, August 26th featuring horror icons. Um, August 26th. We're the horror icons. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Patrick Bromley. Hey, uh, uh, what's up, everybody? This is two horror icons here uh, of the Screamcast, Sean DeRager and uh, and Brad Henderson. They they wanted hello horror icons. Is that correct? I think we can. Do that. I I believe that's what it said. Okay. Maybe we're supposed to talk about horror icons. I don't really know. I mean, Screamcast <laughs> is pretty iconic, but whatever. I think so. I think so. Um, so what's up, everybody? On this on this live show. Uh, we we are basically satellite recording into the show right now. This is not pre-recorded or edited at all, and we, I'm told we're supposed to talk about Toby Hooper and um, and and all that. So I mean, I feel like this is going to be a live show of like everyone just talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, no, I I, I don't think so, man. I I think he has inspired so many people. And so many filmmakers, and myself included. And, I mean, I know that he has, you know, Poltergeist and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but you could still take both of those films out. And he still kind of, he still has an iconic film history. And that, that's, that's what I love about him. I mean, you can go to those movies because those are, you know, two of his most popular films. But, I mean, he has so many good and great films. Um, and, I mean, he's... It's such a mark on the industry, and that's that's what I loved about him. But personally, what I've always loved about Toby Hooper, and this isn't a dig at him, is that his films are insane. Like yeah. he has, he channels this craziness in his films. His characters are are crazy. Um, his his uh, villains are crazy. Like everybody's losing their minds pretty much in every film he does. And and that's what I love because it just gives this there's like no calmness to the movies. They're just they're just insane. And and honestly, if I had to pick if I had to pick one of my favorite Toby Hooper movies that isn't Texas Chainsaw for Massacre 2, because that's exactly what it is. But I mean that because that film, the set dressings, everything about that movie is perfect for me. I mean that's it, even where the family's crazy, but when Stretch gets kidnapped, Stretch is even crazier. Then I mean, she's screaming and shit. Like I, I don't understand how Carolyn Williams didn't lose her voice for life after she filmed that movie. But my favorite thing that Toby Hooper has ever done, and I, I get so much shit for this, is I fucking love The Mangler. Oh. I love number one is I love Ted Levine. Ted Levine is the best. Um, I mean. Everything from the Mangler to, to Banshee Baptor to even voicing Rusty Nail in Joyride. I love Ted Levine. And this is one of his roles where he gets to be, um, like, very, he, you get to see it. Like, he starts off calm and he slowly just goes insane. And, um, like, I, I don't know. The Mangler has always been one that I've loved. 
um, ever since I saw it, I guess, the first time I saw it. I, I want to say the first time I saw it was just a few years ago, because I was always told to stay away. You know, it was like 1995. I mean, stuff was just getting dumped on video. It got a bad rap. And I watched it just, a, I believe, a few years ago. Um, and I was like, this is my favorite Toby Hooper movie, other than, of course, Texas Chain Massacre 2. But, you know. <laughs> Anyways. Because everybody's, everybody's going to say Texas Chain Massacre. Like, I mean, of course. You mean, you mean one of the most iconic, uh, probably most iconic uh, horror film in history. It inspired countless things yeah. way before its time scary as hell brutal um so grimy uh, kick kick started like a exploitation thing too in a way like he's just he's just all over the board but um you know he, he just never had a dull moment until maybe a little bit later when he's like doing mortuary and stuff but even those movies aren't terrible they're just, you know, I mean, he's just kind of, all these directors, Wes Craven, Carpenter, they all lose their steam, you know, but they're still kicking, they're still making movies, and that's what's important. But, I mean, from the 70s until the mid-90s, Hooper was on point. Yeah. No, I, mean, I think my, uh, out of his entire filmography, though, I think the one that I always went, go, went back to, I mean, Texas Chainsaw is probably one of the first movies that really legit scared the fucking shit out of me. Uh, and it's, of course, it's probably the same for everybody. It's when uh, when uh, the guy gets hit in the head, falls down like a bag of meat, and gets dragged in, and the door shuts, right? That, yeah. that, that scare it's right there. It's terrifying. Holy yeah. fuck. I think I shit my pants when I first saw that. But uh, Life Force has to be probably my... If it's not Texas Chainsaw Massacre, probably my favorite Toby Hooper film. Uh, just exactly what you said. This movie gets, I mean, I'm a sci-fi nut anyway. And, uh, this has, is space vampires, of course. Um, naked Mat Ma Matilda May. Yes. Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Hell yes. He's not naked though. But, um, but no, this movie gets just, it starts, you know, it, it, it's space vampires, but then it gets just, Bat shit crazy, and uh, I just—it's always a fun time whenever I watch this film. And uh, you know, I don't know—I don't know what I'm saying, but I—I uh, I, I love <laughs> Life Force so much. So if you if you had to recommend somebody to have a fir first time, and of course Patrick Spalletti got us off. Um, if you had to recommend <laughs> a newbie to any Toby Hooper movie. Without it being something so iconic like that, what would it be? Uh, other than like Life Force or uh, Texas Chainsaw, I think maybe Life Force would be a good choice because I, I, I think, think so. you know I, I I just don't as soon as you hear Toby Hooper immediately you think Texas Chainsaw Massacre and you think you know Poltergeist you don't really think about the other films that he did right away you know it takes a second yeah but so but yeah for I, me, think, I, I always think, think, I think Life, Life Force. Force would be a good one yeah so definitely. this is homework homework for you he did a movie. Um, I believe it was like made for television, but it, there is, it did come out on VHS and it was, uh, rated R and it was fucking Toby Hooper being super weird, uh, which I adore and love to no end. But he did this movie with, uh, D Wallace and Anthony Perkins called, um, uh, I'm dangerous. I, I'm dangerous tonight. I think is the title. It was a made for TV movie and it is weird as hell. 
Um, it has to deal with this, um, uh, like this, this uh, priest, um, like a Mayan priest or Aztec, I guess. And whoever wears this, uh, like cloak dress type thing, um, they become a killer. And it is crazy. <laughs> like, it's hard to believe. Like, every time like, I'm watching a Toby Hooper movie, I'm like, this is hard to comprehend that someone made this movie. It's like but an that's ancient what it is. Aztec cloth that uh, if that someone makes a dress out yes. of, and whoever wears that dress I, 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 becomes I, a killer. I believe, I believe so. I haven't yes, seen the movie but... in a little while, but <laughs> that is the, the, the Toby Hooper movie I'd recommend. Probably it might turn people away just because it is so goofy, but... Um, I mean, in the least negative way, that's why I love Hooper. It's because he's so nutty with his films. Yeah. And you know you're going to get something different each and every time. And I love that. I love that. that. That's why I've always considered him one of the best directors, because he has always, he's never made a dull movie. I mean, right. even when he tried to do a kid's movie with Invaders from Mars, it was still really <laughs> wild, you know? Like, it was just, he can't stop being Toby Hooper, and that's perfect. I mean, that, yeah. that's, I, and, you know, he's always one of those that, I, he needs to be up there with Craven and Carpenter, because he paved the way for so many people. I agree. All right, uh, Patrick, hopefully this was good for you. Uh, I know we're still live, uh, perfectly live right now, and uh, Brad is way more eloquent than me on Toby Hooper, but... Uh, Thanks for uh, allowing us to crash this party. Uh, this is Sean and uh, Brad of the Screamcast. Thescreamcast.com. Google it. Uh, signing off. Bye. <laughs> oh, don't tell me you're leaving. Party's just begun.
All right. Thank you to Sean and Brad from the Screamcast. And speaking of the Screamcast, let me uh, call in the third host of the Screamcast. You know her from If This Movie and the Screamcast and the Splathouse. Uh, we heard from Mike earlier from Splathouse and Dread Central and all of your fan fiction. Please welcome Stephanie Crawford. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Patrick. How are you? I am nervous, but I am so honored to be here. Are you nervous because you have to follow Carolyn Williams and Mick Garris? <laughs> yes, I did not know that was going to be happening. Well, someone had to, and I'm glad that it's you. So thank you. And uh, I've, I've seen that you have been uh, listening and, and participating in the chat, um, which I haven't really been able to monitor at all. I see that it's happening, but I haven't really been able to do anything with it. So I apologize, everyone. Yes, I just turned it off so we wouldn't have that situation where you're like, uh, radio caller, you need to turn down your radio. <laughs> Maybe you should just jump in there as like a mole and be like, man, this Stephanie Crawford <laughs> is really quite talented and insightful. Fire her. All yes. true things. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, and I just played a cue from Invaders from Mars. If you are getting sick of the music, I'm sorry, I can't get rid of it now because Jared Rivett called it uh, Toby Hooper radio. And I love that idea so much <laughs> that now it's, we're stuck with it. So deal with it. Um, but 70, you're no here to talk eaten alive, eaten alive, eaten alive. Uh, this was of course, Toby Hooper's follow up to the Texas chainsaw massacre, uh, and shares a lot of similarities. Um, for those who are maybe less familiar with it, he didn't quite finish the film. He did end up leaving the production because he was really clashing hard with producers. And so there's different versions of who finished up the movie, um, possibly a producer, possibly Carolyn Jones, I've even heard. Interesting. Have you heard that? That Morticia no. Adams like, helped finish the film. Uh, she has a supporting role. And so that is her name, right? Do I have her name right? I don't know. I'll have to look it up. Uh, so I apologize if I have her name wrong, but Morticia Adams possibly finished the film. Um, so when I... Carolyn Jones. Carolyn Jones. Oh, thank goodness. Right. Miss Hattie. Ooh, we're live. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I threw it out to you, hey, what movie do you want to talk about? You had suggested Eaten Alive. Why is that? That's a great question. I'm filled with because great questions. <laughs> You really are. It, <laughs> it's, it's not Nick an easy Garrison film. <laughs> Williams. <laughs> Terrible. It's not an easy film to process. It's not really an easy one to talk about. But I knew we both had a great affection for it. Um, yeah, and it seems to be a little divisive, especially because of the behind-the-scenes issues going on and of course following such a monumental film like Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, but I think as the years go on especially like you're talking about with Life Force with Blu-ray helping it find a new life um, Arrow released a wonderful yeah. edition of it um, I, I think it's being revisited and I think <laughs> I, I think people being able to sit down in the quiet of their living rooms uh, giving themselves some time, um, it's becoming more appreciated. 
Yeah, I definitely think the Blu-ray helps um, because there's a certain stylization to the film that is very specific and also, I think, in keeping with a lot of the really stylized horror films that are also getting all of these kind of like 4K Blu-ray Blu-ray upgrades. Um, you know, a lot of Italian stuff where the colors are really vibrant. I don't know that anybody has thought about Eaten Alive in that same context and then they put on the Arrow Blu-ray and it's like, oh, this looks like a lot of those beautiful Argento movies I've been watching. Um, <laughs> exactly. Colors are as important to Eaten Alive as they are to Suspiria. Yeah. No contest. I have to admit I was disappointed, which is maybe the wrong word. But uh, when I got the Arrow Blu-ray, I, of course, was very excited because it says introduction with director Toby Hooper. So I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait to hear what he's – I just love any interview with him and any piece of insight I can glean from his work. And the introduction is literally like, hey, uh, this is Eaten Alive. Hope you enjoy the colors. <laughs> and then, yeah. and then the movie <laughs> I think starts. It's like 20 seconds. And so it was maybe. like disappointment. And now – Having lived with it, now I love it. Like, now I'm like, oh, yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly what it should be. <laughs> it's just him saying, enjoy the colors. <laughs> but at the time, I, I, was, I was thirsty for more knowledge. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I love especially about Eaten Alive, not just that I think it's a really fun, really insane movie. Like, really, next to probably Texas Chainsaw 2, I would say this is, like, the craziest movie he ever made. Um, because this is Toby Hooper by way of Tennessee Williams, or maybe vice versa, Tennessee Williams by way of Toby Hooper. It is so heightened um, and, and sort of histrionic. Um, but what I love about it is that this was the movie where, you know, Texas Chainsaw, and I, I will be making a case throughout this podcast, and also in a piece that I wrote that will run soon somewhere on the internet, maybe. Um I might be quoting part of that, by the way. Oh, boy. Um, that Texas Chainsaw <laughs> is uh, is much more sort of, you know, formal than people give it credit for. They talk about it like it's a documentary, and it's not. Um, but it is, you know, shooting on a lot of sort of real locations, set dressed or not. But um, Eaten Alive goes the opposite direction. It's not interested in reality at all. And it goes, it's so heightened that everything about it is a construct. Uh, it's very clearly a set. The colors are very stylized and artificial. The women are wearing obvious wigs. It's like everything about the movie is this weird layer of artifice. And that's something that carries on through a lot of Toby Hooper movies where He's not interested in reality. He's interested in the reality that he constructs. And in a way, Eaten Alive, in the way that so many of his movies are, is about being a movie as much as it is also a movie. Right. Um, I, there's something joyfully perverse in how much he embraces the artificiality because it's very purposeful. And like you mentioned, I think I've described this movie before as Tennessee Williams on meth. Oh, yeah. And I can see why Toby Hooper preferred, I think it was the UK title, Death Trap, over um, Eaten Alive. It's That's one of the titles. There's Starlight okay. Slaughter. I think, there's, there's a few. Oh, yeah. There's a lot. Yeah. But I think Death Trap is my favorite. Um, <laughs> because with Eaten Alive, you might think... Maybe it's something like Lake Placid or that the entire plot's going to center around this killer crocodile. 
but it has more in common with the Night of the Iguana than it right, does with right. any of those killer animal movies. <laughs> like, um, yeah, it, it's everything about this movie keeps you kind of off balance, even even the title. And yeah, it it does. It almost feels like a lot of it is a stage play. I think you yeah. could completely transfer this film onto stage. It's a little bit like uh, Ken Russell's Crimes of Passion, where um, you feel like if the camera just moved a little bit off, you would see, like, everything. <laughs> and you'd see an audience right there. I have it, not it, seen it, Crimes of Passion, but um, I'm assuming you just mean if if Kathleen Turner was played by a crocodile. That's exactly what I mean. Okay, meant. all right. See? This is why you're the guy. <laughs> this is why you're the guy. Um, yes, but it's... It's so stylish yeah. in such an aggressive way. It does. It feels like the entire film is just drenched in permanent twilight, and but then you have like these really deep primary colors sinking into that, yeah. and it won't let the eye rest at all. No, and that's and again, I think that's part of what um, is maybe a little bit off-putting about some of Toby Hooper's movies to certain horror fans either on first viewing or forever is that his movies are somewhat uh i don't know if this is a word assaultive uh they are aggressive as you said and i think mcgarris maybe even used that same word um that they can be like physically exhausting experiences to watch and eaten alive is no exception because again it takes you to this place of craziness pretty early on like the movie doesn't bury the lead that Neville Brand is a lunatic. Um, and then it kind of sustains that pitch for the entire movie. And then it is at the same time, visually sort of not exhausting, but again, the colors are so strong and, and so not what you're used to seeing in reality with your just regular eye that like the whole thing does feel a little bit like an assault. I'm saying this in a good way, but I understand why, there are people who maybe don't want to be made to feel that way. Yeah. The first time I saw eaten alive, I, I felt that way. I just, it, it was a lot like how I felt the first time I watched the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre where I was like, wow, that was maybe too effective right, in what right. it was trying to do. I'm just going to take a shower. going to put this <laughs> on the shelf for a while and we'll just see when I get back to it. <laughs> But it is, I mean, it's cool to watch Eden Alive, to him follow some of the same beats, to have in a lot of ways the same end goal, which again is to shake us up, to unsettle us, to upset us, to scare us, um, but to go about it in a completely different way, you know, to embrace artifice. And I, I would argue, I think he embraces comedy a little bit more in Eaten Alive than I'm aware of in Texas Chainsaw. I know he has said... Uh, he thinks Texas Chainsaw is funny. I don't see as much of the comedy. I see moments, look what you did to the door, that kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. um, I don't watch Texas Chainsaw and laugh. And I do laugh at a lot of Eaten Alive, sometimes just because I don't know how else to respond. When we get to the scene where William Finley is just barking <laughs> at Marilyn Burns oh. while their daughter <laughs> cries, it's again, it's as you said, Tennessee Williams on meth. And I don't know how else to respond except to laugh because it has just gone so crazy that that is, I think, the only rational human response. 
Where's my eye? Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it so much. Um, and again, <laughs> there are these. Uh, I had mentioned certain, you know, tropes that show up in a lot of his movies, right? Bad Place is the motel. Bad Place within the Bad Place is the swamp behind the motel. Uh, human face is Neville Brand. The monster is the crocodile. Again, you could argue that Neville Brand is the monster because the crocodile is just being a crocodile. But okay. I would. Yeah, yeah that crocodile is just living its life. It's just like, oh, this is why I'm being fed. <laughs> All right. All right. Ooh, tonight it's puppy Sorry. I'm sorry. Listen, but then it gets Robert England. So, you know. Yeah, who I love, obviously. I'm a horror junkie. And I think he's so cute in this movie. Like, he's physically attractive. I love love his light curly hair, but he's the most disgusting human being ever. And and from the first scene, um, you're like, oh, Toby, please. Please give him a good death, please. <laughs> uh, I I would argue that William Finley still gets my favorite death, um, but Robert Englund is good. I'm just I'm sorry. I'm looking at your Skype icon right now, and yeah. it's Phantom of the Paradise. Yes, I, you might be a little biased. I might be. <laughs> How weird too that like two of my favorite directors are Toby Hooper and Brian De Palma, and they both use William Finley a lot and you know that's not what drew me to either <laughs> I wasn't like a big finhead who then was like ooh what who has he worked <laughs> with um but I love that they both use him a lot and I love uh, how weird he is in this movie along with everyone else as I was watching it yesterday I mean there were long scenes whether it's Neville Brand sort of monologuing muttering to himself and again was battling um addiction during the movie and you know was uh drinking a lot I think while they were making the movie and was sometimes very difficult to work with um, I think that informs his performance somewhat um, but he's monologuing to himself and saying all kinds of crazy shit and then you get the scenes of William Finley trying to talk to Marilyn Burns and what they're saying I just I was noticing that like the dialogue doesn't matter um, in terms of the words that they're speaking almost don't matter in this movie that it's all about sort of the net effect and the way that they're delivering the lines, the volume, the pitch, all of that stuff matters. And it creates like music, the way that it affects us on sort of an emotional level, but much less of, I think, an intellectual level. Um, and that's something I think that runs through a lot of his work, that his movies feel like music in a lot of ways in terms of their ability to get right at something in us. I believe it's, the energy center located right below the heart uh, that, that, you know, some filmmakers are obviously able to do. I just, I find him better. I find Toby Hooper able to do it better than anyone. I agree. It's a very specific skill. I think he was the king at, um, and unfortunately in genre films, filmmakers won't always get credit for being emotional. But his his films, I think, Eaten Alive is right up there. Run on emotion. They run on feeling. This is a film, I've seen it three or four times now. And I'll, parts of the plot will kind of just float out of my head. I'll just kind of forget whole chunks of it. When I see it again, I was like, oh, yeah, the scene in the bar. I kind of <laughs> forgot about that. 
but I will never forget how this movie makes me feel, especially yeah. the first time. It it's like yeah, it's like walking into like a red and violet room and just getting grease rubbed in your face <laughs> and then the movie just stuffs itself into your pores. <laughs> It's another movie also the way that Life Force kind of shifts who the protagonist is um, until it eventually settles on Steve Railsback. I think Eaten Alive does that in a lot of ways. Also, I mean, ultimately, you know, Neville Brand is sort of the – not the protagonist, but he is certainly the main character. Uh, it is his story we are watching, but it does kind of shift – from the girl at the beginning and then, you know, in his homage to Psycho, obviously, um, she does not make it for much of the film. And then it continues to kind of jump around who it's following and we think it's going to be uh, Mel Ferrer and then it's not. And then it's his daughter, but it's also sort of Marilyn Burns who's trying to get to her daughter. There's no clear, um, I guess, hero of the film with the exception of the crocodile. Right. No, the crocodile's the hero. <laughs> but everyone definitely orbits around um, Judd, Neville right. Brand's character. Um, yeah, it, it's... <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. He's just... Yeah, it it really says a lot about eating Alive that... Um, we're we're given basically protagonist people we're cheering for well maybe not cheering for but we don't want them to die right. we want them to get out of here but it it does make sense that he's running a hotel which i love that later in the film carolyn jones says like oh he's still taking people in that hotel <laughs> like he's insane i thought he closed that down he'll just come in come in here and just like rant at the um, she run, she's the madame of right. the prostitution house. And he'll just come in here and rant at the girls. I can't believe he's still taking people at that hotel. And it it's the perfect setting because it's just he's 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 a black hole. Right. He's just sucking everyone in. And you keep hoping um, that there'll be some respite. Maybe we'll get like a really satisfying like warrior woman moment. And technically, the film has a happy ending, but this discordant music is playing over it, and I just find myself like scrunched in on into myself at the end, saying, "This doesn't feel happy." Yeah, yeah. There's a you know through the first um, few of his movies, um, there's this sort of running theme. Uh, not Salem's Lot as much, but certainly Texas Chainsaw and Eaten Alive and The Fun House, um, where the happy ending is essentially just, okay, you survived. It's not about mm -hmm. really vanquishing evil or being triumphant. I do think that that kind of comes into play then with Poltergeist a little bit more. And then by the time we get to Texas Chainsaw 2, it's really about you know, stretch reclaiming uh, power and and defeating evil, you know, more so than movies like this where it's really just about, okay, you survived because the bad guy died or you got away or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's something that's less cathartic about that, you know, especially as movie fans, we're used to movies mm -hmm. operating a certain <laughs> way where it's like, okay, you as the director – 
introduce us to this hero and then at the end they defeat the evil and the evil goes away and we can all feel better and this movie doesn't do that because as you said you know um his leg floating it gives no quarter right it's yeah remember his fake leg that always hurt there it is (laughs) right and that's all that's left and that's the leather face dancing around in the sunlight you know it's like okay we get our last image um but we don't feel really any sense of relief and as you pointed out the music goes a long way towards uh creating that i mean the music in this movie is much like the original texas chainsaw just upsetting it's unsettling. It is atonal and discordant and weird. And nothing about this movie ever allows us to feel comfortable. No, there's not really a moment of joy in this film. <laughs> I mean, you can find a few, especially if you're into dark absurdity. But there's a great quote from Toby in, in an interview on the disc where he says, it's a goddamn carnival of obscenity. And that's perfect. <laughs> That should have been at least one of the movie's titles. Yes, and I I watched the trailer for this, and they pretty much exactly say, Did you like Jaws? Try eating alive! Oh, that's not fair. Oh, I can't imagine being like, Oh, I love Jaws! (laughs) People walking out, like, ashen-faced, maybe quietly (laughs) sobbing, like, Wow. (laughs) doing them dirty marketing department how great though that then uh both of those two directors collaborate and make poltergeist that it is the the meeting of jaws and eaten alive <laughs> do you think it was that misleading trailer that brought them together i'm pretty sure spielberg was like spielberg wait i just made jaws them up. He's like, man i am sorry i heard that trailer that was ridiculous we need to do something together <laughs> Well, I thought it was the other way. I just assumed he didn't see Eaten Alive and was like, I made Jaws. Supposedly, this is like Jaws. We're a perfect fit. <laughs> and Toby's like, yeah, that's the ticket. <laughs> All right, yeah. It's a goddamn carnival of obscenity. <laughs> um, Robert England, as you pointed out, is, I think, very charismatic, um, despite playing a despicable human being. Uh, you can watch the movie and see, oh, okay, I, I get why this guy went on to a bigger career. And again, that's part of, as just a fan of Toby Hooper and his filmography, I like that this is the point at which they begin working together. And it's a relationship that continues all the way through Masters of Horror. Um, right. They do. Yeah, there's moments where he's like about to rape a woman. And then the next second, he's kind of like twisting his body and kicking at the dirt and doing like an aw shucks kind of thing. And he sells them both exactly as strongly. It's crazy. Well, even in his death scene, I mean, there's that part of you that thinks back to the first scene and thinks, okay, Buck, you, you know, deserve a a horrible death for the things that you've done and the things that you've said. But in that moment, fucking die. (laughs) I do a call back to his line. In that moment, you want him to kill Judd. You know what I mean? Like, he becomes the hero for that beat. It reminds me of um, somebody whose name hasn't come up yet, but who is obviously very influenced by Toby Hooper, and that is Rob Zombie. There's that great scene at the end of Devil's Rejects where all of a sudden our sympathies flip, and all of a sudden we're like, oh, yikes, William Forsythe, too far. You're the villain now. 
Um, and then it flips yeah. around, right? As soon as something happens, I don't want to say what happens, but a thing happens, and you're like, "Oh, right, no, they're the monsters. They're the they're the horrible people." Um, and you get a little bit of that in Eaten Alive, where it's like, "Okay, Buck is garbage, but uh, Judd's way worse." So I I'm Team Buck on this. Yeah, that that's a great film to compare it to. Uh, sometimes I feel like the and this isn't to say anything against this film. I love this film. But sometimes I feel like it's a it's judging me a little bit for watching it <laughs> and enjoying it. In what way? Well, it's part of its charm. It, it's almost going back to the ending where you're like, oh, are you satisfied? The killer's dead. Done. Done. <laughs> Why? So many innocent people died. A little girl's going to be scarred and terrified for the rest of her life. That poor doggy. Done. Done. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's kind of beautiful. And it's really brave because, yeah, it is a film, but we're not giving any catharsis. Right. And going back, it's satisfying. It's a satisfying film, but it's when you you need to let yourself process yeah. a little bit. Yeah, I think it's uh, especially coming into it cold. Um, I think it would be maybe a hard movie to just love and embrace immediately. Again, unless you were familiar with Toby Hooper's filmography, because I think then watching it, you see immediately how it fits in in all the different ways, and you understand tonally what some of his movies do and so you're sort of able to ride that out and then when you don't get that ending you're like okay but that's okay because he made texas chainsaw and uh he made even you know the end of texas chainsaw 2 is cathartic in a way because stretch triumphs but at what cost right i mean it doesn't we still go out on a note of just unbearable like oh i'm all wound up um so he's not interested in that kind of quieter pay off the sort of denouement where you're just like, okay, and now everything's back to normal. It, it brings you to the peak moment of hysteria and insanity and then credits. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, it, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just want to throw something out at you. And I think it's something that we've kind of maybe talked about before. Um, Sexuality has come up a few times so far today. It came up in our discussion of Life Force. It came up with uh, Carolyn and Mick. Um, And there is obviously some sexuality in Eaten Alive. There's, you know, nudity that is perhaps unnecessary. There's, there's, it's a sleazy movie. You know, it opens in a brothel with the character saying, I'm rearing to fuck. Um, I've always seen the movie as sort of being about uh, impotence and maybe I'm stretching, but when you think about it opens on a scene of a character being frustrated that he's not going to get to have sex. Um, now we are told, okay, go down the hall and have sex. We're, we don't see that, you know, in, in the viewer's have mind. Two girls. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Well, listen, Morticia is very accommodating. Um, but we don't see that, so we aren't given that, whatever you want to call it. I won't say that's catharsis, but, you know, it's Chekhov's threesome. So <laughs> <laughs> there's a – and then, you know, all of William Finley's sort of tension um, with his wife where we just feel like – I don't think it's ever spoken that he is an impotent man, but he is sort of rendered impotent by his wife. 
Uh, and then we get the scene where Judd doesn't even get the sort of climactic satisfaction of killing him because just as he's about to, the crocodile comes in and cock blocks him. And so <laughs> over and over again, we get these men who are sort of uh, frustrated and dissatisfied and, you know, often leading to violence. Um, and we don't really get that from any, you know, we don't get that from any of the female characters. The only character, the only male character we don't get it from is the sheriff who's pretty like even tempered the whole movie. Oh, and I guess Mel Ferrer, but. Yeah, his was interesting. Um, he really is sold as the straight laced guy, but I guess you could look into his impotence being that he basically lost one of his daughters. She yeah. ran off and became a prostitute of course she immediately escaped and but yeah i i I think you're absolutely right even it it is funny to bring that up with a film that opens up in a brothel but yeah there's the sexuality here is brutish it's very quick it's uncomfortable it's violent um yeah I, I fully agree. And that scene with William Finley arguing with his wife, Marilyn Burns, I, you feel like you're locked in that room with them and you would do anything to get out of that room. <laughs> yeah, they are. Just anything. They are uh, miserable. <laughs> you know, like, uh, <laughs> it is unpleasant. And really, that's the scene where it you know goes full um, Tennessee Williams, you know, uh, because you're looking at sort of this domestic drama play out, but none of it really makes sense. Neither one is communicating. And before long, William Finley just devolves into barking and, uh, it's just madness. Um, you know, every time I revisit the movie, I do think there's a moment, maybe it's after Mel Ferrer dies where I do think it sags a little bit. Um, and I think it's that same thing that you were talking about earlier where it gets to a point where I'm like, wait, I can't remember exactly what happens. I, I, I stop remembering specific plot details. I remember the climax. I know that's coming, but some of the kind of mystery stuff with the daughter and the sheriff and Buck and his new girlfriend, some of that stuff, um, I don't like as much as the first half uh, but it certainly does rally at the end. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, it, it's so effective at building kind of that nightmarish quality to it. Um, it almost feels like you're watching it half asleep because it has that logic where you accept it while you're asleep. And the second you wake up, you're like, nope, yeah. that, that didn't make any <laughs> sense. So when they they try to, I guess, corral the plot into a more traditional thing, it it, yeah, it's it's not completely, um, it's not terrible, it's not completely off the rails, but I agree with you, it does break up the flow mm. a little bit. I just made a motion with my arm like a crocodile going <laughs> through oh, the water. Okay, I assume you made a flow motion. motion, but no, crocodile, I got it. I'm, I'm trying to fit the theme, yes. <laughs> Have you seen um, Crocodile, his... Uh from the early 2000s. I think it premiered on cable maybe. No, I okay. haven't. It's it's you know, no, it's fine. It's it's sort of widely regarded as his least successful movie and I understand why. 
Um, I think there's certainly a lot of fun to be had there. It's it's hindered a little bit by the use of a CG crocodile, which mm-hmm. especially like early 2000s, it's just I don't know that a CG crocodile is ever going to be great. But in the early 2000s on a low budget movie like that technology is not there. But it's so interesting to watch him again revisit the idea of this killer crocodile movie you know after having made um eaten alive so early in his career what um you know what is the effect for you of all of the the very obvious sort of stylized artifice i mean the the prostitute at the beginning is wearing a wig we're never told why she never takes it off marilyn burns is wearing a wig when we're introduced to her she takes it off was this a thing that women did in the 70s just they wore wigs um, it was a trend. Okay. There, um, I I have some vintage fashion magazines, mm-hmm. and this they they would be advert. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is why I come to you with these questions. <laughs> they would be advertised a lot, like lipstick, um, wigs, and it's a yeah. It <laughs> and again, I'm talking to someone who wasn't actually there, but right. instead of having to constantly abuse your hair with bleaching and and you can just put on a wig um but you know and it i i also think um in the beginning um that cute little um clara's wig Mm -hmm. that like blonde little halo Mm -hmm. i think that was her way of just separating herself from bringing a prostitute okay i think it was kind of showing her separation and innocence um, away from actually being able to do it. And um, I don't know, with Marilyn Burns' character, I think she was in such a deeply, horrifically unhappy situation. <laughs> Maybe that, that was kind of like one of her outlets, just like, today, I'm just going to put on this one. <laughs> I'm going to bring these on a road trip, and they'll be Okay. <laughs> Well, and, uh, you know, I, I guess we could make a case for um, there being the movie trying to say something about women playing specific roles. I think we could make a case for oh. it being, Absolutely. like you said, kind of a stage play. There's almost a, a community theater aspect to it, especially when the wigs are fairly unconvincing and, and I guess not supposed to be convincing. Um, but I could see the heightened artifice of the movie kind of having one of two effects. I think it could pull a lot of people out of the movie. I think um, seeing things like the obvious wigs and the obvious set and the unnatural lighting. I think there are people and who would... Carolyn Jones' makeup. It's an interesting choice. It's al- It almost looks like they covered her face in liquid latex, let yes. it dry, and then put really heavy pancake makeup over it. Okay, yes. I didn't want to say, you know, something hurtful or offensive, but yeah, she looks a little bit melty. Yeah, it it, it almost feels like is this kind of a subtle callback to Leatherface because it was very much on purpose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting. So, so that's one possible effect that it just p- totally pulls you out of the movie. It sounds like you have the reaction more so that I have, which is that it kind of draws us in a little bit more. Um, why, you know, not to psychoanalyze you, but why do you think it has that effect on you? Maybe it's a little bit like adolescence going into puberty a little bit because 
the first time I watched it, I was very put off. There were some things about it that really attracted me, but mostly I was afraid of it. And I, I walked away from it honestly thinking I probably wouldn't watch it again. Okay. But it stayed in my mind, and I would think back to it a lot. And when you and I were talking about it randomly, I'm like, you know, yeah, I'm going to watch it again. And the second time, I liked it a lot more. I appreciated a lot more of it. Um, even the, it's a mean movie. It is a mean, brutal movie. But I was able to see why more, I guess. The fact that it wasn't trying to hurt me. That's just what the movie is. And I'm visiting the movie. The movie doesn't have to change for me. Right. And then when I saw it again, I I was like, this is beautiful. Look at these colors. <laughs> the staging's insane. It's almost like, you know, again, not to get too personal, but it's almost like sex. Um, at the beginning, I was terrified of it. Didn't want to think about it. Didn't want to talk about it. And then, you know, you get older and you get more experienced and as weird and messy as it could be, you find the beauty in it. <laughs> and then so, at the end, you're eaten by a crocodile. I get the, I get exactly. the metaphor. It's a perfect one-to-one. It's a good metaphor. Sex, <laughs> eating alive, same thing. Bam. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I think for me, part of it has to do with it. Um, I mean, every movie sort of creates its own nightmare world right while we're in this movie especially if it's a good movie and somebody's doing their job well which toby hooper always did we're sort of trapped in his nightmare for 90 minutes uh, until he lets us go and again you know his gift is sometimes he doesn't let us go <laughs> it's the movie stays oh it's with a us. claustrophobic movie isn't it the whole thing i think that's what it is too right so beyond just the normal scope of like okay you have me for 90 minutes i'm trapped in your nightmare um there's something about the fact that I, you know, I watched the movie and it's not something I've ever actually, it's not a thought I've ever actually articulated until now when people are listening and we're live. So what better <laughs> time? Um, the idea that, okay, even if, if I'm in this movie and I'm in the Starlight Hotel uh, and I got away, I still can't get away because it's on a set. So you're closed in on top of being closed in that, that something about the artifice creates an even more sort of inescapable vibe, 100% subconsciously for me. I'm not saying that it has that effect on everyone, but I, I feel like that might be part of it. I agree. And when we think of horror films, we usually think of one set at night. Uh, but this one is all, it's like all night shoots. It's yeah. all darkness. Yes. There's... There's like maybe a slight hint of sunset for like a mood, but no, like we're trapped in this never ending. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. What would it be like three, four a.m.? Yeah. Just by the looks of it, just by the feel of it. It's a it's a goddamn carnival of of obscenity. <laughs> of obscenity, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, it it. Um, a lot like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but in a completely different way. Because that one, um, I don't want to give away <laughs> the what you wrote, which was brilliant, that you shared with me. Because um, it hasn't been published yet. But, you know, you talked about how 
what people feel can impact what they assume a film is. And I think even though they're very different films, it's a, it's a very similar situation with both Eaten Alive and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They both get kind of that that feeling where you're getting like rust and metal shavings in your veins. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's not because it's ugly. Texas Chainsaw is beautifully shot. It's very thoughtfully staged. And we've talked about Eaten Alive. The colors are off-putting but gorgeous. They're very... You know, everything's there for a very specific reason. But you still feel assaulted. Right. But it's a very artful assaulted. It is. You know? <laughs> it is. It's, it is an interesting sort of transition between Texas Chainsaw because I think it retains a lot of, you know, Texas Chainsaw's DNA. Um, but I think it introduces a lot of things into his filmmaking style that then we would see play out. Um you know, certainly throughout the 80s uh, and into the 90s. And I wonder if, like you said, these two movies being similar in terms of, you know, rust and metal shavings and just being unpleasant, needing a shower after, um, that at a certain point, horror fans sort of began to associate that with Toby Hooper. And so when it was something else that that is maybe what led to some of the resistance, if not outright rejection where it's like, well, that's not Toby Hooper. Texas chainsaw is Toby Hooper. Mm-hmm. Cause I know how that movie looked and made me feel. And, and you know, um, life force or invaders from Mars or the mangler, like, well, these movies aren't that. So there's a, a sort of a rejection that, you know, uh, because he did it so well on these first two movies. I agree completely. Unfortunately, he was so skilled and so effective, it probably did work against him in a lot of ways. Um, it's like Peter Bogdanovich said, like, the only true test of a film is time. And now that we can look back on everything he did, Poltergeist is nothing like Life Force. Life Force is nothing like Eaten Alive. Eaten Alive is nothing like Funhouse. And, of course, you'll be able to find, like, threads throughout but good Lord, you have to be so immensely talented and brave, yeah. really brave to be able to pull all that off. Even just going from Texas Chainsaw Massacre to Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Wow. <laughs> like that takes balls. It really does. Yeah. He was and like- yeah. I, I, yeah. Sorry. It's just he had so much depth. And so much bravery that I think people who didn't have that were probably scared away from it. Yeah. And that should have never worked against him, but I think it probably did. He was not a, a timid filmmaker in the, in the slightest. And yet, um, I don't think, you know, when, when I was talking with uh, Carolyn and McGarris, he was saying, you know, he his movies would go for the throat, but they they weren't just about shock and they weren't just about like, well, what's the darkest, most fucked up thing I can show you? Um, for as, for as insane as his movies can get and for as, you know, critical as they can be at times of America, particularly in the two Texas chainsaws and, and arguably in the mangler. Um, I don't get a sense of cynicism from his movies. He, he doesn't feel like a sin, even in the way that like, Carpenter is a cynic. Even if you never heard a, an interview with Carpenter and you would know pretty quickly <laughs> that he's a cynic, but if you never heard him talk, you would 
get it from his movies. And I don't ever get that from Toby Hooper's movies. Yeah, I think a part of that might be that he hints at the trauma that the characters experience and what that's going to be like for them afterwards. Like a lot of times the ending scene, you see the aftermath and, you know, as a human being, you process like, Oh God, this isn't over for them. This is going to be the rest of their life. And he always takes, or a lot of the time he, he would take the time to show that. And I think that means a lot. Um, if it's eaten alive, cool. If it's not eaten alive, what would you say is your favorite Toby Hooper movie? Ooh, I will say it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Nice. It's just so effective and being funny and gross. And I love every single character. Good Lord. I've I've seen that movie maybe 20 times. It's creepy, including with the commentary. It's a a magic (laughs) trick. Yeah. So, yeah, I have to go to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too. That's a good Which one. might be my favorite horror movie of all time. Of dun, all dun, the horror dun. movies. Interesting. Maybe. I like this. <laughs> this makes me very happy to hear. I love that movie. Um, yeah, I still remember uh, driving to Tower Records, I think in high school. I had saved up to buy a Laserdisc player, uh, and I drove to... Tower Records, like four towns over, and on a Saturday night, and bought Texas Chainsaw Massacre two on Laserdisc, and brought it home, and for sure watched it twice in a row that night. Um, That's so cool. Do you still have it? Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You you need to post the picture of that my <laughs> Laserdisc player still sort of functions. Um, The last time I used it, honestly, was to watch Invaders from Mars sometime in the last eight years because I was in this house um, before it was probably out on DVD. I just didn't have the DVD in Scream Factory. Obviously, hadn't put it out yet. And I wanted to rewatch his Invaders from Mars. So I busted out my laser disc. (laughs) Did you have to flip it halfway through? Of course. Dedication. That's the that's the appeal of laser (laughs) disc. Tired of watching movies in more than 30 minute increments? We've got the technology for you. We have a giant unwieldy disc <laughs> right? for you. Every time you bring this up to a counter, the clerk will say, what is this? Because they don't understand, even at the store where they sell them. <laughs> no, I've always been like, oh, maybe I should start collecting laser discs because I missed that whole thing. It was a little bit before my time. And occasionally I'll go to a record store and see them. I'll just pick one up and be like, uh, maybe not today. Don't, don't, maybe don't another do day. Don't do it. You know, there are certain things that like you can only get on Laserdisc. Certain Criterion commentaries were licensed only for the Laserdisc and they haven't resurfaced on the DVD or the Blu-ray. But uh, I don't. It's probably not a real solid investment. Anyway, <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad this is how we wrapped up our conversation. Yeah, great Toby Hooper <laughs> lasers. Uh, you are so nice to uh, to devote your afternoon to talking about this. I really, really appreciate it. I was looking forward to talking about this movie with you a, a great deal, and uh, and so nice to listen in and be chatting along with everybody. So thank you. No, it's a huge honor. I know what a huge day this is and to take such a 
terribly sad anniversary. You you're making it this joyous occasion and you've pulled so many people in and it's so meaningful to so many of us. And it it really is a true honor to have the smallest part in this. So thank you. And you're doing great. Thank you. We'll see. I don't know. Yourself. You're killing. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm about halfway maybe. I don't know. I don't know how long this is going to go, <laughs> but thank goodness for these podcast dedications and tributes because, uh, that's when I get up to pee. So <laughs> I didn't think this through. I was like, wait, I'm literally by myself live the whole time. When will I eat? <laughs> yeah. I still haven't figured out eating yet, but that's okay. I have oh, a boy. lot of Dr. Pepper in front of me. Um, anyway, thank you, Stephanie. I'm going to play another podcast dedication, probably another piece of music. And we will be back with uh, director Jill Gevergesian to talk about Toby and probably the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We'll see where the conversation goes. But thank you again, Stephanie. Thank you. Get some pizza in, quick. I will try. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Bye. Bye.